Hi there, and welcome to the Life on This podcast, which is dedicated to helping you live your life as fully as possible through lifefulness. I'm your host, Samson Jones. I'm your co-host, James Croft. Lifefulness adapts the techniques of the spiritual community in a congregation in a way that everyone can take part, just as mindfulness did for Buddhist Vipassana meditation and yoga did for Hindu Hatha Yoga. Uh, I'm the director of the Lifefulness Project and the co-founder of Sunday Assembly, the worldwide network of secular congregations. And I'm the leader of the Ethical Society of St. Louis, one of America's largest humanist congregations. On the Life on This podcast, we interview fascinating people who can give us and hopefully you insights on how we can learn from cutting edge science to ancient traditions so that we can live our best lives possible and try to create a world where everyone can do that. So let's get lifeful. Our guest this week is Zoe Cormier, author of Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, The Science of Hedonism and The Hedonism of Science. And she challenges us to take fun seriously. Zoe's journalism has featured in Rolling Stone, The Times, Wired, Nature, New Scientist, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, BBC Focus and many other publications. Are there any other publications? I mean, go Zoe. She's done it all. Tons. And she's a founder of the organisation Guerrilla Science, and she believes that science is not only a tool, but a wonderful window into the biggest questions of existence. And she thinks that understanding the world better through science helps us live life more fully. And we completely agree. There's so much in this conversation because Almost every spiritual tradition and lifefulness makes joyful celebration a key part of a good life. And that's what Zoe's book is all about. Her passion for science and for the hedonistic aspects of life shines through in our conversation. So you'll feel good about having fun. At long last. Right, I can get rid of all the guilt, all that Puritan guilt that I've inherited. I thought that Zoe was really insightful when she stressed how monastic religious traditions, ones which insist that we find spiritual truth and fulfilment in solitude, silence and asceticism, have got it all wrong. Rather, she thinks we find our greatest source of spiritual wonder in the hedonic acts we perform with each other, bopping on the dance floor, writhing at the rave and bonking in the bedroom yes you gotta do it more you gotta do it more that's the message of this one so if you want to live life more passionately and less guiltily this is the conversation for you there are not many people who have sort of done uh, adventures in non-religious congregation or have sort of tried to create careers in it and you're talking to two of them uh, and and so that's the entire purpose of this the life on this podcast which may or may not be streaming on Facebook uh, and uh, yeah and so that's what we're gonna talk about today and that's one of the reasons we really want to speak to you was because the idea of the idea of transcendence the idea of worship uh, and the idea of gathering in a meaningful way is central to so many religions and we're really interested in finding out how 
that can be done in a way which is secular and inclusive. And you are a science journalist uh, and author and you wrote a, literally wrote a book called The uh, History of Sex, Drugs and... Hello, there we go. Uh, and all about the importance of transcendence. And so that's where we want to speak to you. And we're going to get into that. And uh, and the, traditionally what we ask people is, did you have a religious background? But you didn't have a religious background, but you went to sort of had a lot of meaning and a lot of transcendence and a lot of gathering. So mm -hmm. did you have, how did you understand your, this idea of spirituality or meaning and belonging in your childhood? Yeah, it's funny. You know, that's actually a word that spirituality is a word that I still struggle with. Uh, so you may have seen, I do a lot of writing about psychedelics, for example, and they often talk about the importance of mystical experiences or of spiritual experiences. And I still, no matter how many times the word is explained to me, no matter how many times I look at different dictionary definitions, it still doesn't quite hit home what that really means. And I think it may be because I was raised in a house that was 100% secular. Uh, my parents did many things wrong, but one thing they did absolutely right was I was raised in a household where religion had nothing to do ever with my childhood in any way, shape or form. Uh, so, for example, my dad is uh, uh, Italian and French in background, and obviously, like all good Canadian kids of that background, was sent to Catholic school, and he hated it. Uh, and my mother uh, was raised by the uh, sort of more traditional uh, Canadian Anglo-Saxon branch, which uh, basically her mother would drop her and her sister off for Sunday school and then drive away and leave them there, sort of uh, religion as an obligatory act. Uh, so... I didn't have the kind of childhood where I went to church on Sundays just because I never, ever went to church. Uh, in fact, one of the first times I've ever went to a church, I was 17 for the funeral of a family friend, and it was an Anglican ceremony. And at one point, they asked everybody to come up and take communion. And I was the only person left sitting in the audience out of 400 people who didn't go up. Oh, wow. Um, which I didn't mind. <laughs> um, I've got a lot of family in Italy, none of whom, to my knowledge, really pay much attention to the church. Uh, we were in a church uh, outside Venice, and my cousin Filippo explained that it's a sin to walk in front of the altar, and then he proceeded to just walk right up and walk right across <laughs> it without crossing himself. Um, so, but what I was brought up with was most certainly music. Uh, so my dad's a rock promoter, and... Uh, he put on everybody from the police to George Clinton to Al Green to all kinds of random uh, reggae acts and so forth. And it was always about the music. And I don't think that my parents intended to teach me that that's, you know, was a, a, an experience that was meant to be religious in town. Um, but, you know, it was also a, a family business. But I also spent many years working at a nightclub and observing all different kinds of music and what kind of audiences they would bring and what kind of vibes they would have. Uh, and I will say that one religious experience for me was my very first Glastonbury uh, in mm. 2003. Uh, I watched a documentary when I was 14 about Glastonbury and it was six hours long and it was made by a Canadian filmmaker named Avi Lewis. And Avi Lewis is in fact the husband of Naomi Klein, the Canadian writer who wrote No Logo. So Avi okay. Lewis actually started off as a music journalist and he made this documentary about Glastonbury. And I'm from Toronto, and Torontonians can be very well-behaved and um, not terribly rowdy, shall we say. And I saw this documentary about Glastonbury. It was the, the headliners for that year. Uh, they included The Prodigy and The Chemical Brothers, and it was not the sunniest year. There was some mud. And I, 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 I watched this six-hour documentary about 150,000 Brits cramming into a field, rain or shine, having fun no matter what, 
Ray Davies singing Waterloo Sunset and everybody singing along. And I just took one look at this and I thought, these are my people. Mm. These are my people. This is where I belong. So I promised myself I'd go to a Glastonbury before I was 25 and I went when I was 20. The headliners for that year were Radiohead, um, Flaming Lips, um, Chemical Brothers as well, Apex Twin. It absolutely changed my life. And a lot of the people that I was there with, I'm still friends with. Um, and music doesn't touch everybody in this way. Mm. Uh, so I also studied the, the piano for a very long time. I played in orchestras. I played the clarinet. I have been to band camp. Uh, it was actually orchestra camp because we also had string instruments. Okay, very and, good. Uh, uh, and I Not just that. flutes. Ha! I played the clarinet. You would not stick something with a reed up there, but... Um, I will Certainly, I, there'd be a lot of. I understand that reed <laughs> instruments need a lot of development. Of, I'm going to just sort of stop oh. that joke before we get really anatomical. But, uh, uh, um, <laughs> indeed. Uh, but I did experience. It was interesting that at that experience, playing in an orchestra for the first time, and not just playing the piano by myself with a teacher, I experienced something that they call uh, the endorphin rush of playing with other people. So uh, I was for the first time in an ensemble of about 80 students uh, and uh, we played Riverdance of all things, which isn't even the greatest track, but there's a moment where you have this great crescendo and everybody builds up to this huge, mm -hmm. this huge orchestral symphony. I mean, really, actually a symphony. And I remember being 13 years old and at this point I'd never had kissed a boy, I'd never smoked a joint, but the endorphin rush I got in my mm. whole body, it was not anything like I'd felt either listening to my parents blasting music in the car or playing piano by myself in the house. That feeling of being with all those people at once and that energy, the goosebumps that you get, the thrill that you get, it really did change my life actually. And I never became a professional musician, but as you can probably tell from the book that I wrote, it's my first love really. Uh, I often consider myself a failed musician, not a mm. professional writer. And I actually originally only wanted to write the book about music. I actually didn't want to write about drugs. It was the publisher's idea to write about sex, drugs, and music. <laughs> they're like, they're like music. How can we uh, punch up this title a bit? Uh, huh. no. well, actually, the, well, the reason, well, actually, the reason was quite practical in that many books had been written about just music. No one had actually written a scientific exploration mm. of all three topics at once. No one had. Um, and I had done quite a lot of writing about sex before this. I'd, in fact, my very first magazine feature was about vaginal plastic surgery uh, when I was 23. Um, but the, my first There's a brilliant name for that. What is it again? Oh, oh, no, sorry. I was thinking designer vaginas. Designer vagina, yeah. But there actually, my first, I actually hated researching the science of sex because the science of sex, the history is riddled with misogyny and homophobia. You know, science is just a tool we use to understand the world and people bring their prejudices to the table, no matter what they're studying, whether it's the atom mm -hmm. or the human body. And nowhere is that more obvious in the study of sex. You see the most awful, shame-inducing, misanthropic nonsense cast out there under the veil of science. Uh, drugs, I know the good and the bad, and I've enjoyed them, but I've also seen terribly dark things in my mm -hmm. life. But my favorite thing above all is music. And I say to every audience when I talk about my book, Music is the one thing I can't go one day without. I can't even go several hours without music. And I'll say to the audience, you know, like, you know, for some people, it's like their first cup of coffee in the morning. For me, the very first track, the first musical track I hear every day, no matter what it is, mm. I will get like an endorphin rush of like, oh, I'm alive again. And I'll often say to the audience, you know, when you listen to something you really love and you get this burning right there, like you're in love, right? Often some people in the audience will look at me with these like blank expressions that they have no idea what I'm talking about. 
other people, usually the professional musicians, will know exactly what I'm talking about. What's interesting is that, well, much of what you said, but I was, so when you were talking about how you, you know, you, that word spirituality didn't really mean anything to it you. It still doesn't. I and still it, struggle with it. And, and it's, and often like, because I'm someone who's a total atheist and I think I would have, and it took me a while to go to see it as a useful lens in my life. Uh, and one of the ways I like to talk about, or like when people are maybe not as comfortable with the word or some of the ideas around it is that when, because so much of what you talk about is like this physical sense of embodied transcendence, which connects you to the thing which is so important in your life, that uh, connects you to the friends around you, you use the word religious experience, oh. like it, it sort of matched your, your life with a certain way of looking at it. And a question I really like to ask is like, what shape does your body make when you're talking about it? And I had that lined up. I didn't have to ask it. Your hands were going and I've got this music and it touches you and it spreads <laughs> out. And, and if you're not uh, looking at the video version, you are so like it is <laughs> an engaged, energetic thing of like thoughts and ideas, but also sort of, you know, things beyond words. It is. And actually, well, in a lot of languages, music and dance are one word, really, that the two are always connected to each other. It's a very embodied thing. And the, the whole concept of an audience and a performer is really in it's it's not universal. In a lot of cultures, music is something that everybody makes all day long with other people. And this is what central this is what central, I think, to getting back to your your questions about spiritual experiences and group experiences. Music is really central in that way, in that it's not just about a performer performing for an audience. It's about something you do with other people. And there are biological reasons why I got that endorphin rush when I played in an orchestra when I was 13, and why people today talk about, have you heard the term jam magic? No. I... Jam magic is a phenomenon where you can, you can do certain things when you play with other people that you can't do alone, mm. such as if you play the trumpet, you may be able to hit a high note. If you're a guitarist, you may be able to figure out a certain chord complexity. People, a lot of musicians will report that they will figure out things and create some kind of harmony and magic with other people that they would never get playing alone, uh, you know, as a egocentric DJ at a rig full of buttons. When you're with other people, you can do new things. And that's what it's all about. And there are so many different definitions for music. And one of the best definitions is a form of social negotiation via sound. It's a way of communicating with each other in a fashion that doesn't necessarily involve words, but you can still create the meaning. You can express emotions without using words. And what I love is that music is one of the few things that is universal to all cultures. Not every culture has writing, the number zero agriculture, architecture, or even the concept of a god. Many cultures are pantheistic, but there's many different ways that different cultures celebrate the universe. Music is universal to every human culture. It's one of the few things that we all have. Uh, yeah, and th again, this is why we wanted to speak to you, because like, as we sort of go and ask these questions of how can we go and sort of think of how can we go and take the component pieces of spiritual practices and learn from spiritual communities obviously music is central to it uh then and transcendence and actually sort of drugs have really been uh central or, or a key part of some experiences as well the i mean is there any sort of part of your research which looked at religion uh, like music in a religious context or sort of 
specifically or? Uh, you know, a little bit. Uh, certainly music has been used by religion and a lot of music venues are cathedral-like for the sound. Um, I wouldn't necessarily connect, I mean, I wouldn't say that music is used in spiritual ways more powerfully than it's used in, for example, ways to describe romantic love mm. or ways to describe political belief. Um, it's just another way that we use music. And I would consider music to be more central to the human condition than I would religion. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm, by the way, I'm not sort of doing a oh, no, pro, no, no, no. pro, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, uh, oh, and I, I think that that's actually a lot of what this stuff does, religion, like that feeling that you get when you're, I was having a conversation about it with someone else actually around barbershop quartets hmm. and saying that there's the like perfect a, harmony. Yeah, the fifth overtone. So there's yeah. four of you singing and that's how he described spirituality and that feeling of when you are jam magic, like we get these sort of out of body experiences where if you're an early person, the most logical explanation is some sort of other force because that's what it feels like when you do it. That is excellent. It does. It, and people have discovered, uh, you know, music releases the same hormones and the same neurotransmitters that you have from orgasm and from drugs. So dopamine that gives you that sort of chills mm. feeling, the tingly feeling. Oxytocin is a fascinating one. That's also known as the trust hormone or some science writers like to nickname it the cuddle chemical. This is released, released by orgasm, but it's also released by breastfeeding. It's something that's meant to bond you with other people. Interestingly, people singing in choirs when they've taken blood mm. samples their bodies produce the trust hormone. It produces oxytocin, uh, which, you know, but they don't, they don't get that when they sing alone. They get it when they sing with other people. Again, getting back to this idea of music as a form of acoustic bonding, it cements you to each other in a really beautiful way. And a lot of religion is, again, as you said, about group experience, coming together to appreciate whether it be the universe, your holy book, the tenets that you hold dear in terms of caring for each other. All Jesus really said was look out for each other and be nice to each other. It's not that fucking radical, is it? And yet somehow we managed to crucify him for it. But that's what a lot of it is, is just being a decent person and looking out for other human beings. And, you know, one can't deny the usefulness of religious communities in that regard. And it's a shame that we have forgotten about it in our, you know, modern capitalist self-centered Netflix obsessed society and you know lockdown hasn't been great in that regard because people have been stuck at home not doing things with each other but absolutely yeah getting back to what you said about the communal experience no matter where you come from in life everybody needs something that they can't necessarily rationally explain to believe in and for some people it's God um, so for some people it's true love there are no rational explanations to say whether or not the one person that you love is more special or more suited to you than anybody else. But for a lot of people, that's what they need to believe in. Uh, I was talking about this with, um, there's one tenet that British people hold dear, and that is the importance of the monarchy. Uh, I am a Republican to my core. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think the monarchy, is, I know, I know. So that's, weird that's, that it's still, that we've still got it. And there's, well, I, I find it so weird. I, I disagree with it 100%. Yeah. But I'm still a bit of me, which is like, ah, oh, well, you know, maybe better, better out than in or whatever it is. I know, and it makes I know, I know, no I know. rational no. sense. I know that. Well, I, of course you know that. And even friends of mine who are committed socialists who are very left-wing still love the queen. Just love it. Yeah. You know, she makes them happy and so does the institution. And I point out, well, what about, you know, 
Prince Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein? Or what about, you know, you wouldn't be so happy if it was Prince Charles, Il Tempolino, as my Italian relatives call him. Uh, and what also, does that mean? Or even, or even the most Sorry, rational, What does Il Tempolino mean? Oh, it's kind of dirty. He once told Camilla when he was still married. Oh, Prince yes. Diana, I want to be a tampon inside your body. So a lot of Italians still refer to him as Il Tempolino, which I would like to bring back to these stores, by the way. Which which one of the anyone on this call hasn't once said to the person that they love <laughs> or even their boss at work, uh, I want to be your tampon? It's actually... <laughs> That's the thing is it's quite common and a lot of people like aren't quite switched on. They're more sort of, there's a lot of sanitary pad people out there and uh, the... But yeah, I mean, everybody needs some kind of unexamined belief that is a bit irrational for some people, you know, and it, it, for people who love the monarchy, you just can't argue with them. You can point out that the monarchy, and also I don't hate the, I don't hate the people. Okay. I don't hate the queen. She looks bored. Mm. I hate the institution. I hate the institution because I love England, but the worst thing about society here is the classes structure. And the monarchy is a big shiny example that says some people are more special than other people because of who their parents are. And that's reprehensible to me. And that's not a humanistic way to view life. And even if you point out to people, what country in the world has the most tourists? Well, not I mean, they, it's France. No, it's because we've got a monarchy and they come, otherwise they wouldn't come unless they knew that somewhere, probably on holiday somewhere else here yeah. are some royals that's why it's italy kind of... italy italy and france get along just fine without the monarchy and as david mitchell the comedian says what would bring in more people than a royal wedding a royal beheading and my birthday motherfucker still <laughs> day and one of these days i'm gonna get my birthday wish imagine if italy had a king that's all i'm saying Woo! <laughs> mega tourism <laughs> James, you had, you've got quite a sort of interesting connection with, because you are an atheist, humanist, uh, minister, mm. scientific, and have got more degrees than anyone on earth, maybe, huh. uh, the addicted to education. But like you sort of actually uh, grew up sort of, were you not at a cathedral school? You were sort of singing in a choir? Or... Well, not, I wasn't at the St. Paul's Cathedral School, but I was at St. Paul's School in London and we had a chapel choir, which I sang in. So you're right. That a lot okay, of... there we go. So that was my connection. Early musical activity is was related directly to religion. I think, Zoe, you said something really profound earlier when you said that, I think you said that music is more central to human culture than religion is. And I think that that will be a kind of wow moment for many people listening if they really internalize that. Because I think for many people, particularly people steeped in the musical culture and history of Britain, where lots of our musical culture is aligned very closely with religion, like the great choral tradition is all Christian, to, to a large degree Christian. Um, lots of our classical tradition is Christian, particularly the the kind of um, what's considered the not popular music, like the, the high class music mm. of England um, is all associated with religion throughout history. And I think that one of the things that I feel like has happened over many millennia is that religions have slowly taken fundamentally human parts of experience and laid claim to them such that many people can't even think of something like communal singing outside of a religious context. So I was just gonna say, I'm always the person who ends up defending uh, religion in these calls uh, because I just think that like it's often the most 
rational explanation for these incredible like whenever we have these amazing feelings that were seen divine like if you happen to have that lens on it you go oh well when i meet someone who's so amazing they stand out like other people must be a bit of god in them when we see like i would say i don't know if it's necessarily always a sort of conscious thing or just a rational like uh, the most rational explanation and i'd maybe put it back on secular society that we haven't done enough to explain like we haven't done enough to reclaim transcendence we haven't done enough to say that actually this because otherwise you do get this argument that spiritual feelings that peak experiences that mystical experience and sort of more like spandrels you know stephen pinker's idea for a sort of genetic tendency which doesn't actually lead us anywhere and it's like oh sure you can do it but actually i think this is these are like transcendence is like a core human value and it can go and bring us together and it tells us something really powerful about who we are and uh so uh, well look i can go on that forever uh the one thing i would really love to well i would can i you are so, oh sorry i, I, I was... want to i felt like zoe was skeptical about what i said so i wanted to give her an opportunity to respond to it oh i was actually turning it over in my mind because you said that the concept of a choir of choral singing would be alien to most people outside of a religious context and i was just thinking about it i'm not sure if that's true i mean but then again i grew up in the world of you know i mean george clinton to me is a god mm. he's a god among men um, Please, can you tell the Hillary Clinton story? Uh, the the oh. Chelsea Clinton story. But by the way, this is just oh, one example one. of so many great uh, little tales. Go for it. There's so many great examples of why George Clinton is amazing. Um, well, that's well, the, the, the Chelsea Clinton story. I mean, you're going to have to show the graphic, but basically there's a really famous photograph of George Clinton with uh, Chelsea when she was a teenager, when her dad was in the White House, and uh, she went to one of his gigs and she wanted to go backstage uh, to meet him. And a photographer from Rolling Stone happened to be there and he thought, oh my God, Clinton and Clinton, this is awesome. And went to take a photograph of the two of them together. What, no, what none of them realized was uh, that as they were walking into the backstage dressing room, uh, George Clinton was having a post gig celebratory crack smoke up. And he saw her coming in with the secret service. He went, oh shit took his crack pipe and hit it behind his back. And the photograph of the two of them together, he's grinning like a motherfucker. And you would assume, rightly so, that he was very high. He was also in a lot of pain because he had this molten hot crack pipe burning all the skin off of the inside of his hand and he couldn't let the Secret Service smell it. James um, and I always have a sort of post-gig crack pipe. Of course. So, uh, <laughs> it was one of those things which I really felt connected to the... Who doesn't? Who doesn't? We'll, we'll have one of them after this huh? podcast. Howdy there, just thought I would interrupt to bring you a very exciting message and that is that we are launching a Lifefulness Podcast competition. It is a giveaway in time with the launch of this podcast and if you like what we're talking about here then I think you will love the prizes that we're giving away. What you have to do is go to www.lifefulness.io forward slash podcast. That's our podcast page. And then there's an entry form. And when you go to the entry form, 
you then get the option to go and share the podcast. And basically, the more ways that you share the podcast, if you subscribe to the newsletter, if you follow the Facebook group, I mean, stuff you probably want to do anyway, uh, then the more entries you get into this competition. And there are some super prizes. There is a personal development workshop, so you can lifefulness your life. We've called that one Queer Eye and the Straight Guy. There is the chance to win a culture change workshop for your company. Uh, And then there are also a host of speeches that you can win. Uh, So, I mean, maybe do it at your family WhatsApp. James and I can do a talk on lifefulness. But we're more thinking that this would be great for your company, your community, whatever organisation that you're part of. And you can go and enter by going to www.lifefulness.io forward slash podcast. It would really help us and we hope the prizes will be up your alley so what are you waiting for get on do it do it click 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 share 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 all of that stuff all right back to the brilliant podcast ciao but i was thinking i was just looking up some old research that i did into the relationship between particularly communal expressions of artistic um work and religious Mm. congregations and one of the things that I found when I was doing that research, which is fascinating in the congregational research, is that church groups in the United States produce more artistic output than any other form of cultural organization. In terms of the amount of music, theatrical productions, and visual art they produce, they massively outproduce every other type of cultural institution and in fact just looking at some of the research recently from the UK which found that there are 40,000 choirs in the UK of which 33,000 of them are school and church groups so even in very uh, school secular, group, but I would, I would I would I would say school groups mean that you may not be part of it because you want to be no, sure, sure. I agree with that. I'm just intrigued that even in super secular UK, a significant chunk of all choirs happen in churches. And that, I think, suggests that there is a link in, in many people's minds between this sort of cultural product and religion. Mm. The, and do you have any, so from the sort of scientific viewpoint of this because that's one thing you really went into i'd love to like what are some of the the best things about having these sort of transcendental experiences or having these sort of peak experiences whether that be through sex drugs uh rock and roll or uh, anything else because and and really to to get into it because i think a lot of people find that because a lot of this stuff has you know, had sort of negative, either rock and roll, sort of pointless, sex, don't talk about it in public, uh, drugs, Ooh. dangerous, like we don't, can't quite grasp how important the sort of neurophysiological aspects of these experiences are. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, I was giving this a think and, you know, let's take the Buddhist mantra that life is suffering all you need is science to see that that is not true. Your body is built to experience pleasure. Your body is built to experience pleasure from sex. You don't need to get a dopamine rush from caffeine and music most certainly doesn't have to give you goosebumps and chills. Think about, you know, what people will do to experience that endorphin rush from going to a gig together. Uh, Or you want to talk about gig magic. 
Have you ever been to a massive event where there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of people, but somehow everybody walks around each other really gently. You don't get a lot of bumping or moshing. Mm -hmm. People are actually quite respectful of each other's face. Uh, I actually, one of the most remarkable instances of that that I saw was spiritualized playing Ladies and Gentlemen, We Are Floating in mm -hmm. Outer Space, which is a pretty spiritual, you know, pretty gospel-like album. Um, you know, and I think that the more we understand our biology, the more we understand that we are built for pleasure, but also the more we understand our biology, the more we realize that you can have these experiences without drugs. Mm. You know, my one of my favorite drugs at the moment is called uh, brain-derived growth neurotrophic factor, BDNF. Uh, so it's a, the chemical that is released when you have a really, really strong workout, and it actually feeds the growth of brain cells. Uh, this is why every single time I don't feel like going to the gym, I tell myself, more from my brain than it is so my just, I just I, and, I, uh, it's often useful to use the word church uh so everybody needs a church for some so i was just gonna say you i yeah. uh, you actually only get it from you're getting it from doing a big workout right but you can get it from a run you can get it from was, other kinds of strong physical i was a bit activities. disappointed i was uh, like oh interesting it's legal you say uh but uh no you have to do, <laughs> do a lot of work for it yeah but it's like that rudder yeah. slide that people talk about. It clears your head and it clarifies your thinking. Um, uh, and, you know, your body is built to feel these things. It is normal and appropriate to feel pleasure from being alive. Oh, I love um, that. And if oh, there's one thing that we know great. about. Great. <laughs> awesome. And if there's one thing we know about the human species compared to other species, you know, there's lots of things that we think make us special. One of the most important aspects of the human condition and biology will uphold this is that we need each other we are a social species you know no, whether you want to say no man is an island or you want to look at the size of our groups mm. for example it is clear that we are one of the most social primates that there is and that we need each other to function and if we have activities that we need to do together that's important the, this i have james and i were just speaking to this before the these this stuff with coronavirus that we might not be able to find a cure for ever is going to the thought of missing groups of people doing stuff together just breaks uh, my heart like that is yeah, what that, humanity that, is about oh, cool. oh yeah no i couldn't agree with you more and you know my gym has opened but uh, getting back to what i was saying about church everybody has their church mm. somewhere that they go where they find meaning and for some people it's the cinema I have some friends, for example, who love the cinema so much, no matter how expensive it gets, they just having the size of that screen and that sound system and that feeling of going to turn your phone off and worship at somebody's artistic creation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of religious experience is also like artistic experience in that it's about surrendering to a form of art, just giving yourself up to a higher power, whether it's Radiohead or your minister or, you know, apocalypse now some great mm. magnificent creation and uh, i often refer to my gym as my church it's somewhere that i feel like i need to go every day to clear my head to feel healthy and balanced uh but ultimately my real church is a gig yeah. my real church is a place heaping with human beings um and when is that going to happen again i mean if you want to talk beyond music um you know because not everybody's that into music another art form that is one of my absolute most treasured treasured uh, I mean, human experiences is stand-up comedy. Mm. I will never forget seeing Billy Connolly when I was 12 years old uh, in Toronto at a beautiful theater called Massey Hall. So that would have been 16 years ago. 
sorry, not 26 years ago. <laughs> oh, one of those moments. <laughs> after. My, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, sorry, 26 years ago, saw Billy Connolly. My dad, because of the promoter, he managed to get us front oh. row tickets for it. And he did three hours. He did three hours. And at the end of three hours, he did three encores. Three oh. encores. And at the end, he walked in circles on the stage. And he said, I'm so sorry, I'm out. And then, you know, just got a massive standing ovation, like to see Billy Connolly then. And I saw him five years ago. I took my mom to see him in London. Uh, this was after he'd been mm -hmm. diagnosed with Parkinson's. So his humor was not quite as physical as it usually was, but he's still a genius. And I know that when you stand on stage and you make 5,000 people laugh at once, yeah. that is be better than any drug. That is like the, the endorphin rush you get from laughing with other people as well. And that's actually one thing I really, really miss from lockdown is not just seeing music with other people. It's also seeing comedy with other people. And that includes, I mean, for example, you know, I can watch tons of films on my television, but you just don't Alone. laugh as much at something when you're alone. You just don't. And that's another key to the human condition. It's the things that you appreciate more with other people. I have friends who say that they don't enjoy eating steak as much as they do when they're with me. Yeah. Um, you know, or drinking is supposed to be a social activity. David Nutts of Imperial College is always banging on about this, that there's nothing wrong with having alcohol, but it really needs to be a social activity. Otherwise, you can go down a slippery slope. Well, I think there's, I mean, even I was speaking to someone, uh, I think at the weekend, like you can, like when there is, my wife and I have a little kid and then someone else sees him and you see them afresh. You see little Ragnar afresh being adorable or, and it can be in a city Aww. or it can be in uh, somewhere else. And I was actually going to go on, talk about something different in the social area, but it did make me think of there is, this hilarious moment when I'm sure you've seen it because these these sort of transcendent connections are so personal to us that it can be so hard when someone doesn't get it, like a music person trying to, and I always remember my friend, a friend who really loved jazz and we'd be at like stupid ah. o'clock in the morning, we'd have just been out dancing all night and he'd be like, but listen to this and I'd be like, I can't you feel me? I'm like, it sounds like it was on in a lift, mate. And he's just really, but listen, but listen. Uh, the, well, I guess the one thing there is that, that what that points to, I'm going to try to turn this distraction into uh, a direction, a story of my life, uh, is well, actually it's a lot about the meaning that we bring to it as well. Like for some people going to a gig isn't going to have that effect because they haven't, you know, done a lifetime of becoming appreciative of the music or sort of, or like in comedy, you know, if you haven't heard a lot of jokes, you're not going to get the jokes about the jokes or whatever else that might be. Mar 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 Margaret, Margaret Thatcher was renowned for having no sense of humor. Let's yeah. Uh, the, and, and then in like, sort of when you go and think about all of these different things, have you just seen like, what are some other ways that sort of listeners to this podcast, if they haven't really heard like a particular activity that will really help them find that transcendence what are some of the other things that you're seeing sort of groups of people do or that you sort of encountered in your research oh uh well you know it really depends on the person um you know so not everybody is into music uh in my book i describe a condition called amusia which means no music uh so people who have amusia you know they're usually perfectly intelligent there's nothing wrong with their hearing 
uh, they're just brain, their brain isn't doing all the computational bits of magic that does what everyone else's brain does. Uh, and one of, one of the most famous A musics is Che Guevara. Uh, but I just discovered Ai Weiwei, the artist. He says music makes absolutely no uh. sense to him. It has no meaning. And it's, it's quite possible that that's what he hears is that it's, it's often they just sort of hear disjointed noise. Mu music is an illusion. Your brain has to put things together for it to have meaning and texture for you. And not everybody has that. Um, but it doesn't, would anybody say that Ai Weiwei doesn't have passionate beliefs in humanism or in group experiences yeah. or the meaning of life? Of course not. To not. His face. So it's, of course not, but just, you know, it's all about finding whatever it is that floats your boat. So for me, there are some visual artists that I adore. I adore the Van Gogh uh, Museum in Amsterdam. Every time I've been, I am just bawling like a child by the time I get to the end. Um, I adore the Impressionists, but in general, modern art is not really my thing. You know, I, I can stare at a painting in the Tate Modern for half an hour and not even know if I like uh -huh. it. Friends of, mine, friends of mine who are really into modern art can see you know, some simplistic, basic piece of crap and get this huge explosion of hormones and endorphins from it. You know, it just depends on the person. You have to find what it is that you love and don't be ashamed to love it. You know, some people, for example, it's food. Some people, the foodies, they get so hyper-focused on, you know, the newest blend of cilantro or some new form of mustard. And it's not for everybody. And it's important not to get too snobby about what it is that you like. And jazz fans often can be quite snobby. Just lean to the jazz fans now. Uh, Hey, yeah, uh, have cats. <laughs> Tell you, we don't want your sort of Rolex around here. <laughs> but, you know, classical musicians can be incredible purists too. You know, it's important not to be too much of a snob and to recognize, you know, what it is that can you enjoy with other people or, you know, it can be alone. But uh, a big one is actually outdoor activities. Uh, there's a great book that I read recently called The Nature mm. Fix by the author Florence Williams. And... Um, it's interesting, actually, the, the, the nutritional, medicinal, psychological effects that being in nature have on the human mind and the human psyche and the human body, what they can do, what being in nature can do for uh, victims of war trauma, PTSD, sexual assault, children who have behavioral disorders such as ADHD. Consistently, through, across groups of people, there is an incredible benefit from being in green spaces, in wide spaces, away from cities, um, whether it could be gardening, but also say like a kayaking trip through Yellowstone Park or something, that what it can do to relax your brain and instill a sense of awe has been very little research by modern science, not because it's not important, but because the benefits seem so obvious that it's taken as an article of faith, mm. kind of. But now that they've actually started to drill into what can actually be done, it's amazing. So, you know, in Japan, they have this long tradition of forest paths, you know, going for a walk in the woods, not just a park, the woods and the full experience of the microbes and the insects mm. and the bird song. And this is certainly something during lockdown that people have been commenting on time and time again is the increase in bird song and the cleanliness of the yeah. air. Uh, so I live in Clarkenwell in central London. And one place that I was able to go since March, since the beginning of March was the Regent's Canal for a really long walk. So I couldn't go to my gym, but when Boris Johnson said, you can have one walk a day, I was like, I'll make mine three hours <laughs> long every day then and listen to a lot of podcasts and radio and of course music and just seeing the clarity of the water the fish the reeds the birds uh that was a magical thing to experience and really important for my mental health every day i recently i quite like going on very long walks and i recently saw those as my wife was going down to see my 
uh, her mother, my mother-in-law, and I saw there's a little gap to go for a long walk, but it sort of, and I decided, and it was quite a last minute thing. And I decided to not even have, I was like, well, I could just go for a long walk in the morning or I could just camp somewhere along the way. And then I was like, why even bring a tent? Just bring a sleeping bag and sleep under the stars. And it was, and that sort of went well. And then I just got a series of long trains, wrong trains. And I went, kept on getting further away. And I was like, well, you just want to go for a long walk. It's now just a longer walk. And it was, uh, there were certainly many good parts on it, but just turns out that sort of an extra 20 miles on a walk is just very far. <laughs> actually, yeah, now that you mentioned it, the stars, uh, that's actually star astronomy has never really been my bag in terms of the sciences. I think partially because I grew up in Toronto, which is a lot of air pollution and light pollution. And but also, I mean, astronomy to me isn't that magical. But for other people going stargazing, they would be willing to live in Antarctica. They would be willing to live in the middle of nowhere so they could see those tiny pricks of light in the sky and to realize the sheer size of the but you're just like, By take it or leave it. Yeah, sure. I'm kind of taking or leave it. Just, but find your find what it is that pushes those buttons for you, and if everybody will have something different. And so, like we, like the whole purpose of podcasts is to try to help people live life as fully as possible, and we're sort of exploring this idea of lifefulness. And so, I mean, you've done, you've absolutely smashed it out of the park so far. But the <laughs> hardest test Thank is you. yet to come. Uh, and uh, so obviously you've gone and talked about the, your area of expertise and some practical things that people can do. I love this building up. You might be like, what on earth is this question? I'm going to keep on going. Really want you to get worried okay. here. Uh, so no, but uh, we always like to ask, what does living life as fully as possible mean to you? To me? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, um, I figured you were building up to what? that. What? Uh, I thought so it was a bit of a disguise, a bit of a... Oh, no. Shit. So living life as fully as possible, um, you know, uh, you know, this may this I'll give you a bit of a give you a bit of a curveball, but uh, the musician Beth Orton mm. of all musicians, a lot of people think her music is very bland. Um, I like it, but she's got a song called "Galaxy of Emptiness," and people accused her when she recorded that song of preaching that the universe was empty and devoid of meaning, and she said, "Yes, it is." That's why it's up to you to give your mm. life meaning. And you have to find that meaning however you can. You're not going to have that meaning handed to you by the sun or by a priest or by the government. You have to decide what's going to make your life worth living. And you do need to accept that maybe there is nothing but emptiness and maybe there is no God and maybe love is an illusion. Maybe all those things that we take as being important don't actually exist and they're just inside our head. If that's the case, then make it what you will. It's up to you. And you may not have another life after this. There may be no reincarnation. This may be it. And if this is it, do you want to turn around and realize you've wasted your life? Of course not. Oh, I love that. And I think there, there's, there's, a, there's a beauty in embracing that kind of coldness in science and that you realize, yeah, it is empty and I have to make it what it is. But that's all I can say. You know, every single day you are alive and be grateful for that. Uh, I mean, for me, like, I, that, sorry, go for that, it. It is kind of that basic. Yeah, yeah I mean, huh? to, to my mind, when people talk about, oh, the emptiness, it's like, yeah, that's why being a little person is crazy. There's so many atoms yeah, out there who are just like being bashed yeah. around the sun or whatever it is. They froze a long time ago. They're not going to have discussions about music. They're not even going to go and enjoy it or do all of the things we have. And 
and then we get to do this for such a sort of tiny little smidgen of time. When you spoke about the flaming lips, I mean, do you realize is <laughs> that Prit by almost between that and Nina Simone's uh, Ain't Got No, that is my theology across two songs of just, yeah, it's there might be nothing there i don't think there's anything afterwards but that's what makes right now like so yeah exactly and yeah do savor everything that you have to be grateful for whether it's the flavor of vanilla or hearing your mother's voice on the mm. phone or recorded recorded me i'm not really that into tech but the fact that i can listen to any piece of music every day that i love having a party by sam cook the live version live version that's the true sign of a great musician is is the live version better that I can listen to that at the flip of a switch on my headphones any day of the week. That's a Please, gift. can you carry on listing things that you're grateful for? Because I love it hearing people do, hearing people with this phrase oh. of mind. Because you just flavor vanilla ice cream. I mean, it's held up to be the most <laughs> boring of ice creams. Come on, guys. Like, there's, there's a reason why we went to, you know, where, where did we take vanilla from? Uh, was it Indonesia? Uh, the. But it's, it's, it's again something that we pillaged from, you know, the other side of the world. You know, it's a great yeah. flavor. Uh, I am, I am, I am grateful that I, I mean, I could go a bit for it. I'm grateful it's that fine. I'm grateful that I'm not younger than 25 right now because I'm, you know, I'm pushing 40, but I feel very, very bad for kids that are younger than 25 right now in terms of their job prospects. And, uh, we haven't even gotten into this factor of my work, but long before I wrote a book about sex and drugs, I focused on environmental issues as a journalist. Uh, and in fact, I didn't study music at university i studied biology and my specialty was zoology within which my greatest specialty was amphibians oh no where'd it go i've got one you've here. got a frog this was a birthday this is a birthday present from one of you my did, friends wow that is amazing a little a little freeze-dried oh, frog frogs that. are amazing uh, amphibians are one of my favorite groups of animals um yeah, I mean, climate change, you want to get into that. I mean, people think COVID's a big deal. Wait till climate change hits. It was 45 degrees Celsius in Siberia earlier in, in July. You've really pivoted this I section in a way which is important because we're also interchanging the world. But I'm just going to say that the tone has changed. And it's, huh. it, it's enough. It's not it's enough. enough. It's not enough. To it's, be hey. yeah, it's not enough. Grateful, you have to fight for what I'm, is right. I'm, that is very much the attitude this podcast takes. I'm just saying that I got whiplash from the switcheroo <laughs> that you did there. Uh, then what's huh. like then the other side of this is that what's stopping you from living life as fully as possible at the moment? Capitalism. Mm. That is the ultimate problem. Uh, you know, religion. It's not part of my life, but you know, people can have it, but we will never solve the climate crisis. We will never, ever create a more just society as long as we live under a capitalist structure. And that's just the fucking mm. way it is. And you will not meet a biologist on the face of the earth who thinks that we have a rational economic system. You cannot have an economic system that is predicated on the continued exploitation of resources on what is a finite planet. It doesn't work that way. Mm. So, you know, what would be a meaningful life? Uh, you know, for me, it is two-pronged, celebrating the good things in life, but also recognizing that we also have an obligation to point the finger at the dark forces in the world and the willfully blind structures that we have that are making life not worth living for an awful lot of people, whether they be somebody making your sneakers in a factory in China or 
you know, people uh, in the lower economic zones of America, I mean, there are pockets of America that are like a third world country. And you know that, James. I do. I totally do. Like my, my, I was so much in agreement with you, I managed to turn off my video. Yeah, it's not just pockets. That's the common sign of agreement. Political and cultural system of the United States, which is so anti-communal and fails to provide for the basic needs of the vast majority of its citizens, even though it's the wealthiest country yeah. in the world by GDP. But I could speak for literally hours on the failures of particularly US style capitalism. That would that would take us far from from your your main topic today, which has just been fascinating. By the way, you're, as when you were saying that, I thought that sort of last uh, sentiment you expressed was like could have been in the mouth of uh, any minister or any sort of leader of any congregation. We're here to celebrate the good stuff, but also fight injustice. We must do it together by seeking meaning and transcendence. Well, we do. Well, we do have to do it together. You can write a political treatise that might be a fantastic book, but we're never going to achieve real change unless we do it together. We have to storm the fucking Bastille together. I mean, you don't have to convince us. Like this is what this is what we're into we're we're in the zoe cormier agreement society it seems we're totally ah! into it but i'm I like wondering i, I want to ask kind of a philosophical question here yeah sure um which kind of came out of what i take to be your your overall approach to the topics of your book but also to the political issues that you've explored mm -hmm. which is it seems to me that you are working against the otherworldliness and disconnection with ourselves and our bodies that a lot of philosophies promote. Like some of the things that you've written about, sex, drugs, rock and roll, like that particular style of music, but music in general, a lot of the world's religious traditions have been very anti those. They are very anti sex and pleasure, sometimes explicitly. They are very anti um, certain forms of drugs, although lots of religious traditions also involve forms of drug taking, but many of them are very against that. They are have unusual approaches to music sometimes that are quite puritanical. I guess I see a thread in that of the idea that the disembodied and the spiritual is higher or better than the bodily and the temporal. And I kind of hear in your work a desire to say, no, pleasure is yeah. good and bodies are good and we need mm -hmm. to, is that fair? Yes, that is absolutely fair. And no, you're, you are not wrong. Uh, I have instinctively always been a bit suspicious of uh the monastic tradition the concept that if you really want to see the higher truth in the universe you have to sit on a mountain alone and by yourself mm -hmm. uh you know the concept of going to a silent retreat fucking shoot me now oh, no. yeah, I can't bear it. uh you know but if 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 the truth that you are peddling is that normal life that involves eating and having sex and loving and drinking and all those things is somehow sinful or wrong well then what do you have to teach people these these lessons and this is I'm not a huge fan of the term mindfulness, but I do think that it's important that they've taken the lessons from other Eastern traditions and applied them to everyday life. I don't like it when I see dickheads in Silicon Valley applying the mindfulness traditions so that they can increase their productivity. But I do think that it's important that we find meaning in having a normal everyday life. Uh, yeah, I've always felt that the, you know, that it, believing that the most meaningful life is one that is spent in isolation or solitude or contemplative pondering of the universe i do reject that i do think it's false and i do think it's unfair and i do find it cold my father loved to tell a story when i was a kid about growing up and going to catholic school in canada 
and there was one nun in particular who was the ugliest meanest most miserable nun who beat the shit out of the kids every day just an awful horrible violent woman and there was one girl in the school that was just this vision of light this beautiful and funny and sweet and kind and all the boys absolutely worshiped the ground that she walked on when she graduated high school she ran away with that nun that nun took off the habit and ran away with the prettiest girl in school and some people find that story a bit creepy like it sounds a little bit predatory but I kind of like that story. It feels like, you know, it's never too late. It's never too late to embrace the things in life that were denied to you for too long through shame or tradition or self-denial. It's never too late to enjoy life as it's meant to be lived. That's great. And if I thought your previous sentence had whiplash, that story has got it even more. I think it might have cured the last whiplash I got by sort of whiplashing my head back into a sort of normal Uh position there. What a story. And so you can remember this. What was the reaction in the town? Like what? I don't know. I mean, oh, sorry, I it was your dad's. Sorry, it was your dad's. Yeah, but it, was my, it was my father's childhood my, when my dad was in high school. Uh, one question I had. Um, sorry, go for it, I James. think that the kind of moral of it is so huh. beautiful. And I totally agree with you in the sense that I think that not only is this idea of, of the higher truths being found in isolating ourselves from other people and our own bodies, wrong and not for me, right? I I detest that idea for myself, but I actually think the opposite is true, that we actually find our greatest fulfillment in community with each other when we are both, when we are also enjoying our embodiedness the most, when we are listening to music and eating food and dancing. And that that seems to me where, if there is spiritual truth to be found, we're gonna find it. There's a, uh, uh, so the, the word monk is quite interesting and the idea of a monastery is, which we now take for granted. So monk comes from monos, one. And so the desert, the desert monks would go and be on their own and they'd, and they'd go, they'd be, it's awful. They'd basically go mad. That's why they'd end up sitting on pillars or whatever else they did. And so they're like, okay, we think that it's right for us not to get distracted by society and all the temptations and be on our own. But it turns out that we can't be on our own. So let's just sort of like be on our own together and still be in society. And it's just this, uh, yeah, this testament to our interdependence and our need for one another. Uh, we are getting to the end of this conversation. And Zoe, I just want to say that I've had an absolute blast. It's been tons of fun <laughs> chatting to you. You've got a great laugh, by the way. It's I'm amazing. a big fan. You, there it went again. <laughs> uh, great sort of uh, member of a comedy club audience. Uh, the, I am. Uh, yeah. And so... Like, I was actually once given a free ticket to a show just because they liked my laugh. I went <laughs> especially to laugh at it. Wowzers. <laughs> Laughter. Laughter is medicine, uh, and it's definitely one. You know, I, I'll give you an example. You know how if you have a night with your mates, no matter how much alcohol you consumed or naughty things that you've done, you don't actually have a hangover the next day because you were laughing so much all night. That's because laughter is yeah, medicine. I mean, the the feeling of a great my, I love my wife to bits, and this is and she just it's annoying. She just makes herself laugh. Uh, a lot more than I do. And, you know, I've been a sort of professional comedian <laughs> for some time. And well, she, I'll make her laugh, but just not at the jokes that I really like, which were, you know, a bit meta, a bit referency or what have you. 
And then she'll just say yeah. something which, like, she'll go, it's not even, and she'll just but just collapse on the bed and laugh. But it's still the best thing in the world to be giggling with someone and to be <laughs> caught in that little energetic flow is truly the best thing. And, uh, and your laugh got us distracted again because I was going to ask you, where can people uh, download things by you? Where can people follow you? Uh, where can people buy your books? Uh, sure. So uh, everything about me is found on my website, zoecormier.com. That's Z-O-E and then C-O-R-M from other I-E-R. Uh, you can buy my book uh, in all fine bookshelf, uh, bookstores. You can also buy it. I would suggest instead of going to Amazon mm -hmm. and giving your money to Jeff Bezos, who is the most evil human in the world, uh, go to hive.co.uk. That is an excellent okay. ethical bookseller where you can get things online. If we go back into a second lockdown, which we will, by the way. Um, and uh, my journalism can be found I write a lot at the moment for the BBC. Uh, I did a radio documentary for the BBC called The Haptic Baton that I'm very proud of. That's all about the creation of the world's first orchestra of blind musicians. Um, wow. so, but everything about me is on, my, is on zoecormier.com. I'm also on Twitter, although I don't love Twitter. I'm not on it that much. And Instagram. Thank you so much, Zoe. That was a wonderful conversation. Uh, and here's a bit of etymology for you. The word Zoe means life in Greek, uh, as in zoology, zoo. So Zoe means life, but the first time Zoe was used as a name, it was when they translated the Bible into Greek and they used it for Eve. Oh, well, look, we're just, you know how to get out on a, a get out on a fact. That's why you get, you get the, uh, uh, the big, uh, the big science journalism bucks. Uh, so we're going to say uh, right. goodbye to you and uh, all Thank the you. best. It was, it was absolute delight. Thanks so much for your time. Hello, it is me again for the outro. Uh, I just loved that interview with Zoe. Uh, she is super funny, super smart, and that whole subject that she's into about looking at the importance of pleasure. I mean, really, how can you not be into that? On reflection, when I listen back to it, weirdly, I sort of thought I should got, be slightly better at interrupting uh, because, uh, well, I've, to my mind, I like it when there's a bit of a chat, a bit of a back and forth. And yeah, and then Zoe's such a great speaker that just let her, just sort of almost just pulled the plug out and just let her go. Anyway, that's just something for later. I think Mike's have tried a few changes in the format to go and get a bit more of back and forth and whatnot. Uh, that was, yeah, just really love that. And so now going on to the, the community aspect of like, what does, really, what does that mean for, you know, people who want to go and live lifefulness? And again, there's a core part of this podcast, which is actually about sort of leading into a lifefulness community where people can really connect to each other and help each other live lifeful lives. And and I guess it's that Im importance of those transcendent feelings. I think that with the decline of religion and the sacred and all of this stuff, it's quite, you know, if you don't have this structure around it, which says, actually, that feeling you've got is... <laughs> You know, it's it's not just like some fleeting pleasure. It's it's not just a sort of, uh, you know, this idea that Steven Pinker said, a spandrel. And that's like when your DNA creates something, which sure, it can do that, but it doesn't really get you anywhere in life. It's not going to really uh, make sure that you are able to breed more and or whatever it, <laughs> breed, a great word to use, so romantic. Uh, and yeah, and it's about realizing that, 
those transcendent feelings are vitally important to us in our own lives, but then also as a way of bringing people together. And then they've got that thing where, you know, when you go and share those feelings with other people, you feel connected to people that you might think were outside of your normal circle. And there's some really interesting neuroscience around all of that. And I guess it's why, you know, often when we started Sunday Assembly, people would often say, oh God, why, why does it look so much like a church? It's like, well, because these guys got it right. They were like, you know, they admittedly they put this label on the feeling of God, which, you know, now a lot of people, it's not, you know, we go and push back against that. But like the importance of transcendence is something which is so which is so vital to the Lifefulness Project and so close to my heart. Yeah, and so that's going to be one of the ideas that we explore in the Lifefulness small groups, which you can go and get involved in. We'd love to have you join. Uh, if you go to lifefulness.io, as in Io, uh, the moon of Jupiter, forward slash membership, uh, probably not that smart to put a really long gap in between a website address that's lifefulness.io forward slash membership and you can go and find out more about these small groups and I'd love to have you as a part of them Uh, and so would everyone else you are loved you are worthy of love intrinsically unconditionally I should learn to say those things in a not sarcastic voice. And so then the other thing I wanted to do in these outros was to sort of give a bit of a review of the weeks building up to the podcast launch. So uh, by my calculations, we're now about seven weeks away from the podcast launch. I I did actually count it out and then I lost a piece of paper. The week of the 20th of July. And this was one of those weeks where I was like, yes, everything is Everything is coming up Millhouse, uh, in, uh, to quote The Simpsons. The podcast was coming together. We'd started to do interviews. Uh, the, uh, I'd even been asked by Lennon Flowers to do a piece of work for the dinner party, to go and write down a ritual that I had used at some funerals as part of a book they were doing. And then I submitted it. And then uh, Becca, the person I was working with, loved it. And uh, they're going to pay me for it. And then the podcast is going well. This is the time that when I'm speaking to my ADHD coach and my therapist, you know, even then I was speaking to them going, but but this can't keep going on. This can't keep going on. I'm foreshadowing it a bit. Sometimes my productivity is cyclical. Welcome to ADHD. And so, uh, yeah, that's what we've done. Review the interview, talk about the community, give an update on like the making of this. And just to wrap it up again, please share this, subscribe on whatever thing that you subscribe to things on. We're at The Lifefulness Project on Facebook and on Instagram and uh, Lifefulness Project, uh, Lifefulness, then PRJT on Twitter. I'm at Sanderson Jones. James is at James Croft Speaks. And he is also the first person I want to thank in these credits. Thanks so much, James. You are a fantastic person. It is a pleasure to work with you. Thanks so much to our amazing producer, Mav Shetty. Thanks, William Andrews, Will Andrews, for the cracking artwork. And big up to Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for the cracking music that you're listening to right now. Uh, goodbye and speak to you next week or before. Ciao.